Every summer for the past four or five years, I've uh, done this daddy-daughter camping trip with my three girls. Well, I started off with two girls, and then last year I added the third. Um, and it's, you know, you've been camping. It's amazing how fast time flies when you are, you know, trying to keep your kids safe. You're trying to make sure they have sunscreen applied 17 different times because it rubs off. You're biking and swimming and hiking, making your own food, washing your dishes by hand. And then you're controlled by these awesome natural rhythms like the sun comes up and goes down and you don't have all the unnatural lights. And so it's just an exhausting, amazing day uh, camping. There's sort of this primitive busyness that I I, I describe. Um, No TV, no artificial lamps. You just kind of live your day and it's pretty awesome. These camping trips with my kids, I've come to see a sacred time. Um, Yeah, it's bonding. It's amazing to be out of our context, which is so holy and special to me. And one year we were camping on the east side of the state over at Lake Perigen outside of Winthrop, Washington. And Sophia and I were the only ones still awake. And it was an exceptionally clear night. The fire was just, you know, smoldering embers, so it wasn't creating too much light. And you could see the Milky Way was just amazing. And we were looking up at it and started to talk about the vastness of the universe and how the Milky Way has billions of stars and it's one of maybe billions of galaxies and how all of a sudden we were both just like overwhelmed with the massive scale of creation and our minuscule presence in it, place in it. The fact that Jesus made all of that and yet loves us on this tiny planet in this tiny place in this spot in time that he would visit our planet in the flesh, that, that he would change the constitution of his body to be with us and to die for us. It was all overwhelming. And we enjoyed a good cry together. I mentioned all of these camping trips I do with my daughter, a sacred time, but there was an element to that moment within the sacred time of a camping trip that was extra super special holy. A thinner place even than the thin place of that sacred time. One of those special places like in scripture where the whole of scripture is God breathed, spirit superintended. All of scripture flowed from the pen and personalities of our human ancestors guided by God. But within those sacred texts, there are certain holy of holy passages. I don't know what they are for you. I love me some Psalm 23, Psalm 104, uh, the, the hymn in Colossians 1, pretty much all of Ephesians, Sermon on the Mount. I mean, there's just these places that it's all Spirit breathe that it's all holy scripture, but aren't there these holy of holy sections, those aha spaces? And I think that John 17, Jesus' prayer to the Father right before he goes to the cross, is one of those sacred within sacred texts. Not only do we get a great story about Jesus in John 17, we get an invitation to hear him pray. When you hear someone pray, you get a window into the most intimate part of their being. And so we get in overhearing Jesus' prayer, we get this 
introduction, invitation to see what really matters to him. We get to overhear his prayer to the Father just before he would be arrested and falsely tried and then crucified. I'm going to invite us to enter into that sacred ground together as we read John 17, this high priestly prayer of Jesus. Would you stand, please? Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given to me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men who you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you've given me is from you. For the words which you have given me, I have given to them, and they receive them and truly understand that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I've been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I've come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given to me. And I I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. But now, I come to you. And these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see the glory which you've given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I've made your name known to them, and will make it known, 
so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Lord, thank you for inviting us to overhear you praying to the Father. Thank you for this relationship you invite us into. And I pray by the power of your Spirit you would open up the meaning of these words to us and help us to to pray these ideas, to pray these things alongside you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. This is a meaty prayer. (laughs) And we are going to spend four more weeks, including this Sunday, in this prayer. We started the series off last week looking at just the first five verses. And what we quickly discovered is that Jesus' prayer is personal, very personal, but it's not private. It's intimate, but it is intended to be overheard by us. It makes us want to say, Father, hear this prayer. Hear the prayer of your son. Hear this prayer to be glorified because he's fulfilling our mission as human beings. He's doing the vocation for us that God gave us to do, to to glorify the Father, to reflect his image back into the world. Father, hear his prayer. Hear the prayer that we might know him, because to know him is the door to eternal life. So good. Those are some of the highlights that we, we learned and gleaned from last week in just those first five verses. And this evening, we're going to pick up the prayer, we're going to reach back one verse and start in verse 5, and we're going to go through verse 12. And I want to help us hear what Jesus is praying and why he's praying it in our presence. In other words, we, we want to understand what these words mean, but we also want to ask ourselves, I think it's an important question, why did... Why did he pray this in the presence of his disciples? And why did they think it important to pass it down to us? That's an important question. I think that when we find out those two things, the what of the prayer and the why we have overheard it, we uh, will enthusiastically be saying together, Father, hear this prayer. The first thing we encounter is nothing short of foundational theology set in a prayer. Uh, verses 5 and 6 reveal the mystery of the incarnation. You know, that's that fancy theological word for, it means incarnate, means in meat. <laughs> carne, you know, like uh, there's chili con carne, chili with meat in it. Uh, it's Latin, right? Incarnate. Jesus uh, is part of the, 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 the eternal Godhead, and in a moment in time, uh, through the Virgin Mary, he is born in flesh. He becomes incarnate. It says in verse 5, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had before the world was. Jesus is the preexistent one. In the prologue, that's the first chapter of John's gospel, we start with the words, Jesus is the word. Being not only present at creation, like watching it all take place, but being the agent of creation. Paul will later say in Colossians 1, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. He's like a big player in creation. 
And then in verse 6 of this prayer, Jesus prays, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Manifested your name. Not showed a picture or a hologram or a diagram, but I have become the representation of your name. Don't miss this. Jesus, the creator of all, came into human time and space and flesh. He did this to manifest, which means to make known the name of God. Now, in Hebrew thinking, someone's name is the same as their character. It's not just a descriptor of of who someone's face and, and, and name go together, but it's the idea of who that person's substance is, who they truly are. And part of Jesus's mission on earth was to make the Father known more fully, more clearly, and more intimately than ever before. Think about this. Abraham, the father of the, 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 the Jewish people, the father of faith, really, of biblical faith, experienced the guidance and the grace of God. Moses experienced a little bit more even. He experienced the glory of God and the ambiguous smoke and fire and cloud and still small voice. David came to love and trust the Father through his providence and through his election. The prophets spoke the words of the Father, but Jesus alone is the Father in the flesh. He is God among us. Dale Bruner writes, Jesus is the Father's autobiography to the world. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. So what is the Father like then, if that's true? Well, the Gospels tell us a lot about what that is. Here's a snapshot. Humble enough to be born in a manger and to wash the feet of his disciples wise enough to confound the most experienced teachers of scripture, and gentle enough to spend time with children and the terminally ill, powerful enough to raise the dead, heal diseases, and calm storms with his voice, and gracious enough not to destroy on the spot those who accused, arrested, abused, and crucified him. Jesus shows us that the Father is for us, that he loves us, that he's willing to suffer for us so that we could be forgiven and made whole. That's how he manifests the Father to us. That's what the Father is like. And Jesus manifested him to the disciples who then passed down what they heard and saw and touched and experienced. They passed it down to us. What a prayer. I mean, you see, like, there's a sermon in each of these phrases of Jesus' prayer. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that to you. Um, that's what Bible study is for. We get to go a little more deeper, right, guys? So, yeah, Wednesday night in my house. Um, <clears throat> so we learn that Jesus manifested the name or the character of the Father to us. But I, I want to show a bit more uh, about what Jesus thinks about you and what he thinks about me. Notice in this section of the prayer, verses 6 through 12, That before Jesus prays anything for us, he prays about us. You ever notice that? I was a wrestler in high school. There was a kid on my team who had a tough uh, family life. We'll just call this kid Joe. Uh, His dad was the kind of old school guy who thought he would make his kid more successful in life and tougher if he never said anything good about him. Um, It was just hard on him all the time. Joe was a good wrestler and a really good kid, 
But at the matches, you would hear his dad just like yelling all, out all of the things he was doing wrong. And after some matches, you would see Joe with his head hung and his dad like kind of berating him and telling him, you, you know, you should have done this faster. You should have done this move there. Our junior year, we were at the district tournament. And Joe and I were in between matches. We were up at the top of the bleachers, just kind of resting and taking in the whole scene. And we came down to where our bags were, which were two rows of bleachers behind where the parents were sitting. Joe's dad was there. He didn't see us sitting there. And we overheard Joe's dad telling two other dads how proud he was of Joe, how hard of a worker his son was, what good character he had. And how whether he he lost or won, he'd be proud of him. Joe's face was at first astonished, and then elated, and then sad. Friends, we need to encourage each other. We need to encourage our kids, our spouses, our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ how we need encouragement from those people in our lives we respect and honor, and how we need to be encouragers as well. A lot of people carry the idea that God is somehow generally disappointed with us, generally mad, and pretty much judgmental of you and I. That he probably is disappointed in us most of the time and that Jesus had to come rescue us so he's probably got a chip on his soldier, a sh- shoulder since he died for us and then every time we sin after the cross, like, oh, really? He must think we're the worst. Let me point something out to you from this prayer. Listen to how Jesus speaks to the Father about his disciples in their presence on purpose. They're not two rows of bleachers behind overhearing this. He's doing this on purpose. And he says, you gave them to me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. When someone gives you something which you didn't earn or ask for necessarily or even deserve, what do you call that? Sometimes we open them up with wrapping paper. What do you call that? A gift. A gift. If you're bored during the sermon, I I don't know how you could be, but uh, if you are, you could look at the text. Count how many times the verb give, gave, given is in there. That's how Jesus refers to his disciples and his disciples' disciples, centuries later, as a gift from the Father. When was the last time you thought of yourself as a gift from God, the Father, to the Son? Dale Bruner writes, We disciples do not often think of ourselves as a gift from the Father to the Son. We rather think the other way around. But that is how Christians are twice described at the beginning of Jesus' prayer in verse 2 and verse 6. Now, I want to point this out to encourage myself and to encourage you. We are gifts of God for God. Jesus thinks of you and I as gifts from the Father, and that in itself is amazing 
if I could drop this without breaking, it would be a good time to drop the mic and just walk off, right? Like, that, that, that's, an, that's good news. That's gospel in this prayer right now. But I want to get your, your money's worth or whatever. Uh, so <laughs> so there, there's deep theology in here as well. Believers in Jesus are gifts from God, and we don't become believers on our own accord, and then God gives us the Son. Did you catch that? We don't, like, get it all right, our theology, our belief, our faith, and then get the gift of the Son. Hear the words of Jesus from John in John 10, 26 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. Let me put it this way. Your life of faith, your faith in Jesus itself is a gift from the Father to the Son. Your life of faith, whatever faith you have in Jesus, is a gift from the Father to the Son. I've said this before, you'll hear me say it again. Do not put your faith in your faith. Do not put your faith in your faith. Faith is a gift, and feelings are fleeting, but the substance of salvation is the initiative of God in our lives. Our faith is the outflowing of the experience of God at work in us, to paraphrase Bruner again, our conversion is first a reception of God's graciousness and relationship with Jesus. Our conversion is at first a reception of God's graciousness and our relationship with Jesus, and then it is a response of faith and devotion. You see that? That's important. Don't, don't mix those up. We first receive from God his relationship, his graciousness, and then we respond in faith with thanksgiving and praise and devotion. We're not talking here about age-old debates of predestination versus free will. Those categories are imposed upon Scripture. Those are not scriptural categories that the Bible uh, thinks are very important. Instead, we're presented with narrative and poetry, poetry and prose and prayers like this one that ensures us that salvation is a gift in all of its manifold mystery. Well, what else does Jesus say about his disciples in this prayer to the Father? He says, they've kept your word, that they have come to know everything you've given uh, me is from you, for the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, received them, and truly understood that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. They truly believe that I came from you. They received my word and have kept it. Are you, are you crazy? We're talking about the same 12 dudes who, in, I'm, I'm talking like hours from this scene, maybe less. These soldiers are going to come to this garden where Jesus is praying this prayer. And they're going to be like so scared. In fact, John will be so scared, the soldier will grab his tunic and he'll twist out of that thing like a running back and run away naked. And in a few more hours when Jesus is being punched and interrogated and Peter's watching him in a courtyard and servants and different people say, do you know, you know that guy? 
You'll three times say, I, I've never met him in my life. How can Jesus say such positive things about his disciples in this prayer? That they received my word, that they kept my word, that they truly have come to understand that I came from you. There's this great Anglican priest from the 19th and early 20th century I ran across. His name is Handley Moole. I think that's how you say it. English dude. Writes in King James. Anyway, his book is a gold mine on this prayer. And he calls this scene gracious optimism. Gracious optimism on the part of Jesus that he chooses to see the best in them. Whereas the world may see a derelict house, the Lord sees a fixer-upper with potential. Where the world sees a lost cause, Jesus sees a cause worth dying for. And I agree with Mool that Jesus sees what they will become. After all, the only reason why we know about their failures, don't forget this, is that they wrote, they were so humble, they were so changed that they wrote about your fa- their own failures. You will not find an ancient historian that writes anything negative about the patron he was writing for or about himself that was like now it's you know it's cool to have the mom blog you you know what i'm talking about the mom blog and it's like the genre of the mom blog is sort of about how you fail but do it in such a cute way that it's like cool right that that wasn't a thing in the ancient world like you didn't write anything negative about yourself so, so these men have been so changed by Jesus that they feel free to buck that trend and to write in the, these accounts of Jesus' life how they failed the Lord. That's amazing. And the only reason why we have this prayer of Jesus is because these failures took time to write them down for us and to record them. So I, I think Jesus knew what he was talking about. But when Jesus says the disciples believed in his word and kept his word, he doesn't mean that they would pass a Christian theology test at that time and point. They hadn't even experienced the resurrection yet, let alone the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But they had been with Jesus, and they came to know him, and the things that he said and did, his very existence, they came to believe that those things, the man, his words, his actions, that those were from God. There's a a great missiologist, many of you have heard his name before, Leslie Newbegin, and he, he writes that the work of Jesus is the communication of the name of God, remember that's character, to a community. He doesn't, now he uses the word bequeath a posterity, Uh, he doesn't transfer who he is into a book like the Quran. And he doesn't leave behind a philosophy or an ideal or a program. He leaves behind a community. And Newbegin says that community is primarily the church. Think about how you came to know Jesus or are coming to know Jesus. Think about that for a minute. You know, rarely, I don't know, maybe this is your example. Um, and in some, in some cultures, people do come to Jesus through dreams and vision, and usually it's, it's in places where it's closed to open talking about the gospel. There's, there's persecution. But most of us in the West, 
probably didn't just sit down with the Bible or listen to a podcast and that was it. And that's what brought us to saving faith in Jesus. Most of us had some combination of teaching, yes, but it wasn't it a person or a group of people that model or teach or manifest or show you the love of Jesus in person? You can know all the concepts about Jesus, but nothing replaces experiencing the concept of grace and the forgiveness of a person that you've hurt. You could talk about forgiveness all the time, but when you've really screwed up and you've received true forgiveness, that's a little bit about what Jesus is talking about. You can know all the con- uh, about the concept of loving your neighbor as yourself, but nothing quite compares to experiencing someone come through for you at great personal cost to themselves. And you can listen to worship music in your car. I'd rather listen to sports, but whatever. Um, but nothing compares to singing praises of God with other people that you actually share your life with. Like, there's something cool about concerts and and. and events and things like that, but I love, I love worshiping with you, because as I look out or I hear your voices, we have shared context together, we have a growing community, growing relationships here, that's, that's to me an embodied spirituality, and with that criteria in mind, Remember that our, our, our faith is earthy, it's, it's embodied, it's relational. And at this point in their lives, the disciples did know Jesus as best they could. And they came to know him even more when he ascended into heaven and they received his spirit. And they were part of the Jesus movement that spread, not by passing on mere doctrine and information, but by sharing life with other people. And that's what is so important for Jesus to tell the Father in this prayer. And you can be sure, he's focusing on the positives of your faith put into action as well. And even when it feels like you fail more than you succeed. Let me say that again. You can be sure that Jesus is focusing on the fixer-upper part of you more than your failures as well. That's something, that's good news that we learn from this prayer from Jesus to the Father. So, so far, a little recap, uh, we've observed that this prayer from Jesus to the Father is full of rich theological truth and powerful encouragements, but up to this point, Jesus hasn't even asked for anything. He's just been kind of praying about us and kind of encouraging us on the side, but that's about to change in verse 11. Jesus now petitions, and he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you've given me that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given me. And I guarded them. And not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. It's extremely comforting. Before I get to the comfort part, though, I kind of want to set free the elephant in the room. There's that last sentence in this that talks about the son of perdition. And that's, of course, referring to one of the 12 disciples, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. Does this mean that Judas had to betray Jesus to fulfill Scripture? Did he have no choice in the matter at all? I want to say definitively, uh, that is not the case. We are told 
on numerous accounts in the scriptures, especially in John's gospel, uh, that Judas was well on his way to destruction before the singular event. His heart was dark, and his greed and ambition were never submitted to Jesus. And I think that this should be a hard warning for each of us, uh, just a moment of sobriety. Simply being with Jesus or being close to his teaching is no substitute for actual repentance. Judas had the gift of being with Jesus physically for almost three years of his life, give or take some months. That's amazing. You and I would probably love to have that experience. But he did not respond to that gift with genuine faith. Judas wasn't sacrificed by God in order to make some ancient oracle come true. Rather, the ancient prophecy was uttered because of the knowledge that Judas would not turn from his darkened heart. Okay, elephant, be free. That's kind of the the nutshell. Uh, But don't miss the petition here. While Jesus was on earth with the disciples whose hearts were turned toward him, he kept them safe in the Father's name, in the Father's reputation, in the Father's love and authority. But now, on the eve of his death, he asks the Father on their behalf and on our behalf to keep them, to keep us in his name. This is not a prayer for physical safety. Following Jesus can get you killed. And for most of the twelve, it would end in their martyrdom. There's no guarantee of safety, let alone false lure of health and wealth, fame and fortune in following Jesus. But what there is, is the prayer of the Son asking the Father to keep us in his name, which means to keep us in the faith, to keep us in the family, to keep us to the end. Father, Hear his prayer. That's what I want to say when I, when I understand that. That's what kind of reassurance I need. Sometimes when we sin, don't we often think that, gosh, that's the last straw. Gosh, I've done that same thing 500 times, but on this 501st, I don't know if he's going to forgive me again. What if Jesus is done giving me another chance? Father, hear his prayer. Keep me in his name. That's where I'm at. You know, in Luke's version of these last hours of Jesus' life, there's this other story where Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. That means to bring you to destruction. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Basically, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Satan, the great enemy, wants to take you down, brother, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That is the same thing as saying, Father, keep Peter in your name. It sure seemed like Peter's faith had failed when he denied Jesus three times on the night of his arrest, but Peter is a great example not to put your faith in your faith. Put your faith in the one who keeps you in his name. In this prayer, Jesus pleads with the Father 
to keep us in his name. This request isn't to keep uh, them in your name if they do more good than bad. It is not, Father, keep them in your name if they remain faithful. It is not, keep them in your name if they do anything or unless they do anything or unless they fail to do anything. This prayer is pure grace. Father, hear his prayer. Pray with me. Father, based on your relationship to Jesus, we believe that you not only hear this prayer, but you answer it. Because you love the Son. And you've given all things into his hand, including us. So my prayer, Lord, for me and for my brothers and sisters is that we would believe it. That we would believe that you have given us grace and life and that you will keep us in your name and that your keeping us isn't based on our performance or weighted scales of doing a little bit more good than bad. But it's based on your disposition toward us. And I pray, Lord, that that would free us, that that would free us from fear, that it would free us from hiding from you and being dishonest, that it would usher us into a, a life of, of joy and a life where we can, maybe for the first time in a long time, respond with genuine desire and obedience, not just not just trying to cover our bases, doing just enough to get by. I pray for abundant life for my brothers and sisters, for myself. And we pray, Father, hear his prayer. Amen.